Well, good morning, everybody. It is wonderful to see you here today at the Vista. Uh, if we haven't met before, my name is Austin. I get to serve here as one of our lead pastors. If you join us for the first time or just first time in a long time, maybe it's your first time at church in a really long time, man, we hope that you feel loved and welcomed and wanted, that you fit right in and you make yourself at home here today at the Vista. Now, today we're in the third and final week of this short little series that we're doing before we get into the summer series called Past, Present, Future. And it's a series about time and about how our relationship to time is a very essential part of our relationship with God. And so in the first week of the series, we talked about our relationship with the past, about how the past is not what we've left behind so much as it's what we carry. We talked about healthy and unhealthy ways of carrying this past that we all inevitably carry. We said that what nostalgia, denial, and shame are unhealthy ways of carrying our past, whereas gratitude, acceptance, and contrition are healthy ways of carrying our past. And then last week, we talked about our relationship with the present. We talked about how wanderlust, distraction, and boredom are unhealthy ways of relating to the present, whereas stability, attention, and curiosity are healthy ways of receiving the present and the todayness of God's call upon our lives. And so now today, we'll wrap things up, you, you probably guessed it, by talking about our relationship with the future. Uh, and so we thought also this would be a great time to share some really exciting news about Vista's future. Uh, you've probably noticed that our area continues to see uh, a lot of growth. Got new car washes going up every day for some reason. I, is, Tyler, is Tyler here today? Somebody tell Tyler I made that joke. Tyler's responsible for a few of those car washes. No, they're great. I'm glad we have a car wash for every car in Belton County. Um, <laughs> We experience uh, plenty of growth as a church, too. We've seen more and more growth. And so in anticipation of that growth, we are so excited to announce the launch of a new Vista campus. It's going to be uh, on Mars in 2099. <laughs> We've already got the, the lead pastor couple lined up. It's a husband. It's one of those Pentecostal husband and wife sort of deals, you know, that you've seen. E.T. and Karen Wright, um, they're great. We've already vetted out all the theological positions. We still got a bit of a you know, tension point on human-alien marriages, but besides that, I think we're really in alignment. We're going to figure this thing out. You can just jump on one of Elon's rockets up in McGregor, and it'll take you straight up to services. I think it's seven years, though, to get to Mars and back. Some of you struggle to be here on time, and you live three minutes away, so you're going to have to get it together a little bit if you want to catch the rocket ride. Anyways, it'll be great. Um, I think I'm kidding. But who knows? Right? Who knows? Because that's the thing about the future. It is a very difficult thing to know. It is in the nature of the future to be a little bit unknowable. But if there is one thing I do know about the future, it's that most of us are at least a little bit obsessed with the future. Like, for example, just hypothetically speaking, if you happen to visit ESPN.com a lot, just, it, just in case you're one of those few of us in the room who do, uh, then you've probably noticed that all of the content on ESPN, for example, that's about the past is free, right? There's, there's never like a paywall or an insider subscription needed to read the article about what happened in last night's game. But whereas all of the content that's about the past is free, basically all of the content that's about the future is not free, right? It's always requiring some sort of, any sort of recruiting thing is going to require what? Like an insider subscription or a paywall. And why do you think that is? Well, it's because they know that you are not interested enough in reading the article about what happened in last night's game to pay for it. But they also know 
that you would sell your own mother to read that insider recruiting article about the dual threat quarterback who just took an unofficial visit to your alma mater, wouldn't you? I know you would, guys. And so that's why. That's why they make you do it. We're very fascinated with it. And so maybe insider recruiting articles aren't your thing. But most of us all have this future fetish wherein we are profoundly influenced by what we see when we see the future. So case in point. A lot of recent work in psychology has indicated that we actually think about the future way more than we previously thought we did. Um, To be more specific, that in the course of a typical day, you think about the future about three times more than you think about the past. Now, here's how Mark Seligman, he's a psychology professor at Penn, put it. He said, it's increasingly clear that the mind is mainly drawn to the future, not driven by the past. Therapists are thus exploring new ways to treat depression now that they see it as primarily not because of past traumas and present stresses, but because of skewed visions of what lies ahead. So for the longest, the kind of prevailing thought in psychology was, well, it's all this past stuff that's you know, driving all of our motives, but it's becoming increasingly clear that it's actually the future that drives our motives. And I don't know about you, but that really rings true for me because when I think about my anxiety and my dysfunction in its various forms, for they are many. Um, Yeah, you know, I've got past trauma that I carry around, absolutely. And yeah, I've got present stressors that weigh on me, but when I really parse out my anxiety and dysfunction, the primary source of bad vibes in my life is pessimistic expectations about my future because while the past has momentum and the present has weight, the future has gravity. And gravity is a very, very powerful thing. And so given that the future has such a tremendous pull on us, it's so important that we learn how to navigate the future's pull in a healthy way, that we let it, you know, visual metaphor here, that we let it ramp us up into the elevation of the kingdom instead of splattering us on the concrete. Because if we're not careful, that's what the future's pull will do. It will splatter us on the concrete. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to the book of Acts. We're going to talk a little bit about how to navigate the future's pull in a healthy way. So we'll be in Acts 1, we'll read verses 1 through 11. Acts 1, 1 through 11. It says, the first account that I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Now gathering them together, he commanded them to not leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking Jesus, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, And a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go 
into heaven. Acts 1, verses 1 through 11. So here in Acts 1, we get this really fascinating story about the 40 days that the resurrected Christ spent with the apostles after his resurrection. And it seems as if these 40 days were meant to function as a sort of like boot camp preparing them for the future. And so the first order of business was apparently to offer them, this is what verse 3 says, many convincing proofs, which is a detail that I'd seen before but never really thought about too much. But it's kind of funny when you think about it, isn't it? Like the resurrected Jesus is standing in front of these people. And yet somehow he is still needing to give them proofs. Like They have seen him murdered, put in a tomb. He's standing in front of them. He has walked through walls. He's made them fish tacos on the beach, right? You remember that? And they're still somehow like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, sure it looks like him, but I just, they say everybody's got an evil doppelganger, so how could I... How could I be sure this is him? Maybe a few more fish tacos would tip the scale a little bit. I don't know. I don't know, Jesus. Anyways, Jesus apparently offers them some more convincing proofs. And then they were also told that he speaks to them, again, quote, unquote, here in verse 3, of things concerning the kingdom of God. And it would be nice if we got some details as to what exactly this was. But that's all we've got. And apparently whatever Jesus says about the kingdom of God, it's enough to prompt this question, this famous question in verse 6, when the apostles basically say, hey, Jesus, all this kingdom of God stuff, it sounds amazing, it sounds great, we can't wait. And so is it going to happen like tomorrow or maybe the day after tomorrow? I'm assuming it's one of the two. And this, of course, prompts Jesus' very famous comment that the full scheduling of the full coming of the kingdom of God is not our business. And so we shouldn't act like it is our business. A comment we seem to heedlessly ignore every single time we predict the end of the world, every single time some politician we don't like somewhere has been elected to public office. And so Jesus puts the apostles through 40 days of kingdom boot camp. He tells them to wait for the Holy Spirit instead of obsessing over the future. And then he is lifted up and he ascends into heaven. And it's such a great scene, okay? Jesus has spent the last 40 days preparing the apostles for this very moment, 40 days. He has told them to wait for the Spirit instead of obsess over the future. He has told them to not expect a quick return. And then he's received up into the heavens and they immediately go, is that him? No. Well, what's taking him so? It's been 45 minutes. It's like they learned nothing. It's like they're a group of complete idiots. And so these two men finally show up who we should probably suppose are angels. And, and they talk to the apostles like, guys, what are you doing? Why are you standing there staring up into the heavens? This is literally what he spent 40 days telling you not to do. And this brings us to the first way in which the future's massive gravity can bend our lives into a very unhealthy shape, namely fervor. Fervor is a fun word. Fervor, by which I mean a fixation on the future that tempts us to live ahead of time. Fervor, a fixation on the future that tempts us to live ahead of time. In our future, fervor can come in various forms. Um, But one of the most common expressions, especially in our age, is what we might call dystopia. That's another fun word, dystopia. By which I mean this deeply negative future fervor in which we keep forecasting a world that keeps getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And and you know the drill here. I mean, y'all, good Lord, according to Wikipedia, um, there have been around 500 zombie apocalypse movies made in the last 20 years. 
How many years that I, I can't do the math on that? I don't mean to be judgmental, but I think you can make the case that we have a bit of a problem, right? This is like the only thing we can think of is zombie apocalypse movies. And of course, the, uh, the Christian version of the zombie apocalypse hysteria is what I like to call the, uh, the old end times fetish. You know the one I'm talking about? Oh, where we just keep predicting that, you know, Jesus has got to be coming back soon because this is the worst age ever and everything's falling apart. And so surely Jesus has to be coming back soon. And there are a number of really big problems with embracing the future with this kind of hysterical, pessimistic fervor. First off, and most importantly, as we just established, Jesus said not to do it, right? It's really clear that Jesus said, hey, it's not your business. You don't need to worry about it, so why would you do it? So that's the first and most important reason. Second, we are terrible forecasters of the future who have a terrible propensity to forecast a terrible future. You notice this? I love this observation from a comedian whose uh, name I cannot name because he has been canceled, but it's still funny. He says this. When I read things like the foundations of capitalism are shattering, I'm like, ah, maybe we need some time when we're walking around with a donkey with pots clanging on the sides because now we live in an amazing world and it's wasted on the crappiest generation of spoiled idiots. Flying is the worst because people come back from flights and they're like, it was the worst day of my life. We got on a plane and they made us sit on the runway for 40 minutes. Oh, really? What happened next? Did you fly through the air incredibly like a bird? Did you soar through the clouds and possibly did you partake in the miracle of human flight? You're sitting in a chair in the sky. You're like a Greek god right now. People complain that air travels too slow, that there are too many delays. Well, New York to California takes five hours. That used to take 30 years and you'd probably die on the way. You'd get shot in the neck with an arrow and all the other passengers would just bury you and put a stick there with your hat on it and keep on walking. The Wright brothers would kick us all in the crotch if they knew. Not Louis C.K. And then a third problem with our unhealthy future fervor is that it so easily causes us to either quit on the present or try to force the future. It makes us quit on the present and force the future. I think the best way to discuss this is to go ahead and discuss the two healthy ways of navigating the future's tremendous pull and there are two things that exist in tension, namely anticipation and patience. Okay, anticipation and patience. And so back to our story. Notice that the angels do indeed confirm that Jesus is going to be coming back. Right? In verse 11, they say that he will one day ascend, descend in the same way that he has just ascended. Then throughout Scripture, we've got all these reminders that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And so you should be ready. You should be awake and not asleep at the will of your own life. Because here's the deal. I, I don't know if Jesus is coming back to see us soon. I don't know. But I do know that you're going to be going to see him very soon. You know what I mean? I don't know if he's coming to see you, but... You're going to be going to see him in not very long because you don't get very long, right? And so you should live with this healthy anticipation of God's future because it will come upon you like a thief in the night. But that anticipation needs to be coupled with patience so that the future fills the present instead of emptying it. So in other words, we've got our relationship to the future right when the future fills the present with promise and meaning instead of draining the present of promise and meaning. James Smith, we've quoted him a few times, he puts this really well. He says, to live futurally is not just to look for what comes next, 
Such modes of waiting put a pause on living. My present life is crowded out by what's coming. Now, in contrast to this sort of passive expectation where my being and doing are overwhelmed by waiting, living futurally is living in such a way that my very mode of being in the world is infused with anticipation. I'm acting now on the basis of the future. I am what I am called to be. To put it a little less philosophically, you've probably heard me say that faith is practicing the future in the present. Faith is practicing the future in the present, not rejecting the present in favor of the future. We covered a lot of this ground last week, so we'll just talk about it briefly today. But again, Jesus was very, very clear that the day of God's call on your life, the call for obedience, it is always today, and it is never, ever, ever tomorrow. Jesus was very clear that this is your life right here and right now. And God's future fills right here and right now with meaning instead of draining right here and right now of meaning. Or to use a a music metaphor, relating to the future properly takes the form of a chord and not a note. That kind of over your head, it's real simple. Um, Think about it this way. Notes are like the fundamental building blocks of music. Think of them as the letters of the musical alphabet. And so you can't have music without notes. But if your music is all in only notes, then it's going to be some really, really, really boring music. Okay, so for example, like here's a note. Kind of boring, huh? The world's terrible and I hope Jesus comes back soon. Kind of boring, right? So that's a note. A chord, though, is the kind of, we'll put it this way, a chord is multiple notes sounding at the same time. It's the mingling, the layering, the harmonizing of various notes, and so it makes a much more interesting and beautiful sound, right? So again, note, now here's a chord, and a nice spirit of the Lord fall. No, Jordan's got his job saved, I'm not going to be taking his job. That's all you get. All that to say... um, Future anticipation and present patience are meant to converge in our lives in the form of this chord, okay? Chord, not just one note, multiple notes, a chord, wherein we spend some time with the future, but we don't try to live ahead of time, right? Rather, the past and the future, they converge and they hold this tension when the future is present in the present but doesn't drain the present of meaning. There's a really fascinating example of this from church history. There was this guy named Boniface who was a fourth century Christian who was also a Roman general. He was in charge of this very unruly region of Africa and he was getting really frustrated with all these pagan insurrectionists who were under his control. And so eventually he got to the point where he was sick of them and he decided that he was just going to impose the kingdom of God on all these pagans because he thought he knew what the kingdom of God looked like and it was his job to force God's future and just go ahead and impose the kingdom on them. And so St. Augustine, who's one of the most brilliant theologians in church history, and he was also a contemporary of Boniface, he wrote to him and encouraged him, and he warned him about how unwise it was to try to force God's future in the present. And there's this great line where he said, we ought not want to live ahead of time with only the saints and the righteous. We ought not want to live ahead of time with only the saints and the righteous. I love that phrase, we ought not want to live ahead of time. 
And there's so many really interesting implications that we could talk about. I think about all the implications for just politics, if that infused our politics. Don't try to live ahead of time. But maybe it's sufficient to just note that apparently, apparently God is not in a rush to abolish the world as we know it. Right? Because God could just, apparently God's not in a rush. And so perhaps we should not be in a rush to abolish the world as we know it either. Now certainly, we work for good change. And we try to persuade people with the truth, beauty, and goodness of the gospel, with the truth, beauty, and goodness of Christ. But we don't force the kingdom. And in point of fact, you can't force the kingdom because if you force it, it's not the kingdom. And we shouldn't want to live ahead of time because where and when we are is good. It's not perfect, but it's good. And God's future fills the present with promise and meaning. Let's end with this. As many of us are probably aware, all of us who have uh, kids at Lakewood Elementary, because it's all my kids talked about for the last two weeks, monarch butterflies, um, they take a yearly migration from the northeast tip of North America all the way down to Mexico and then back. Journey of about 3,000 miles in order to ensure the future of the next generation. That's pretty astonishing, right? A butterfly making that journey? And yet the most astonishing part of this journey is that actually no single butterfly lives to make the full journey. In fact, it usually takes four or five generations of butterflies to make the full journey down to Mexico and then back. Right? So one butterfly, you know, leaves the woods of Maine on this pilgrimage and then his great Great, 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 grand butterfly finishes it for him. And man, there's, there's something so um, wonderful but also very humbling about understanding and accepting that, that your life, and I know that your life is literally everything to you, right? How else could it be? But, but your life, man, is just one very small leg of this very long journey that creation is on. And none of us get to live the full journey. We just get the baton for a very brief space and time. And so rather than expecting our lives to be the full journey, we just try to live our part of the journey well. Which means being faithful and merciful and compassionate ways, big and small, and giving the next generation that faithful push towards trust in God's massive faithfulness and showing a watching world that a fierce but fiercely friendly God fills the future. The horizon of the future is filled with the faithfulness of a fierce and friendly God. That's our job. That's all we have been asked to do. Because for all we know, I mean, y'all, for all we know, we are the early church. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for today. We do not deserve to be here. We can never deserve to be here we thank you for the way that you have loved us and called us and we come before you and we confess all sorts of ways in which um, God we have looked forward to the future with this weird fear and anxiety and that the future's gravity can bend our lives out of shape so that we're constantly walking around anxious and depressed and angry instead of looking to the future with great hope and seeing the future fill the promise with meaning. God, we confess that it's very hard sometimes for us to understand that our lives, as total as they are to us, are just one 
little piece of this very long journey that creation is on. And so we ask that you would help us to just run our little leg of that race well so that we could pass off the faith to the next generation and trust them to a faithful God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.